Good morning, El Paso Bawa Church. Good morning and welcome to our Sunday morning service. Um, just want to mention a few announcements. You'll find these in your bulletin. Uh, we have there a women's fall retreat. And I think Audrey was saying this morning that um, they're going to go through Sunday. I didn't, I didn't realize that. It's going to be strange not having uh, most of our women here in the morning service. But anyway, uh, women's fall retreat uh, coming up October 6th through the 9th. So if you are interested in that and have any other questions, you could see Diane Word or Priscilla Meyer that was just playing the keyboard. Uh, today we do have our monthly church lunch uh, right after our worship service. And uh, youth group, we're starting a new series called Reroute It, um, based out of the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. So um, any other announcements, ongoing activities, you could reference your bulletin. We have a lot of them out in the lobby. Uh, so today I'm reading First uh, Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the labor is worthy of his wages. Uh, do not receive an accusation against an elder except, blech, except, from two or three witnesses. Okay, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll uh, have a, a time of worship. Father, we thank you this morning for uh, the opportunity to come together as your body, as a church, and worship you. Uh, Father, we, we pray that uh, everything would glorify your name this morning. Everything we do, um, we, we would be encouraged by the preaching of your word. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Would you now stand with us?
for the saint and for the sinner Enough for this whole wide world Your great grace Oh, such grace
sin was heavy, but chains break at the weight of your glory. I need a shelter, I was an orphan. Now you call me a citizen of heaven.
for the blind man and the beggar. Grace wins for always and forever. Grace wins for the lost out on the streets. Grace wins for the worst part of you and me.
Brennan, I think we might be missing some lights. I'm not sure. I mean, it may be to your advantage, not have my face, but uh, I might not be able to see what I'm doing. Uh, we have a couple of announcements that I wanted to do this morning. Uh, one is that we have actually, on time this year, <laughs> which is sometimes a problem, um, gotten our shoe boxes here for the Chris, Operation Christmas Child. So there are three components that you need if you want to do this, and I encourage you to do it. Uh, there's a box. See the box? The box requires some know-how. Do not ask me to fold this in front of an audience because I will fail. This is the box. You need one of these if you want to participate. You need the instructions on how to pack the box because these go to countries where that's quite important. You can't be sending pocket chain or pocket knives on a keychain and stuff to a lot of these places. You've got to make sure to keep the stuff that keeps the box from getting rejected. And then there's also a label. So you need these three things, and you can fill up uh, as many of these as you want. I'm not sure how many boxes we have, but um, and there's a date. What's the date? It's coming up fairly soon, the date that these are due, like in October usually, right? Oh, first part of November. November. Okay, they're giving us a couple of days extra. I thought for sure it was October. The reason that sticks in my head is because sometimes we didn't get the boxes till October 25th, and they were due in a week or something. So that was tough, but we got time, so do that. The other thing is I don't have a cute little box for it. I'm going to set this down here so I don't kick it. Um, is that this week we have uh, received notice from the Westside Pregnancy Center. I I don't know if you all realize that we do whatever we can to support their ministry. They office right down the street on Sunset. And uh, thankfully, they are in dire need (laughs) of primarily fairly large-sized diapers um, and wipes. And so um, even though Priscilla and I have smiled for many years going past the diaper and wipe row at Sam's, amen? Amen? Haven't bought them for our own kids in a while. We still smile because we're buying them to donate, but I would encourage you, I think it's five, six, and seven size diapers and wipes that they really need the most of, but if you need particulars, we do have an email with that on there. Uh, but I would encourage you to bring them here. They will pick them up from here, or you can drop them off. It's not but five minutes down the road, um, or we'll get them there somehow. Um, but that is really, on, in my mind, a necessary corollary. We, to the chagrin of many in El Paso Bible Church, I mean El Paso, Texas, at El Paso Bible Church, celebrated the ending of Roe versus Wade. We celebrated that, and it's working. That's why they need more diapers and wipes. So that is a ball we are not supposed to drop, guys, just FYI. If they need those, then we need them. Because we have said we value life, and in a sense, right, that means we value diapers and wipes. Yes? We value the things that life requires at the age in which those babies are. So um, I would encourage you, I know times are tough, um, a box of large size diapers and a box of wipes will run you about $75 these days at Sam's. Uh, but if you can swing even a small package, uh, do that and it would be of use to them, please. All right, those are the two things. I don't think I got to any accusations of heresy yet either. Isn't that amazing? I got through two announcements without somebody having a problem already. Don't worry, there's plenty of time. 
Uh, but we got a potluck also today. I think Jacob mentioned that. If you didn't bring anything, don't worry about it. We got tons of food, tons of things to drink. So please stay. The whole point of that is uh, that we're supposed to know who each other are and what to pray for each other for and to live life together and spend time together. Um, if you want to just come in and listen to a message, you, we're going to talk about this too. There's YouTube, right? YouTube stinks at potlucks, right? YouTube doesn't make good fried chicken, right? And you can't fellowship around a table there. So children, the Fergusons are indicating to me that I haven't dismissed you. So go ahead to Children's Church, children. I wanted you to hear those things because kids like to fill these boxes up. And they like to go get diapers and wipes for kids that are smaller than they are. That kind of thing. All right, so First Peter, that's where we are. You remember uh, that the title, the, the way that Peter addresses his audience which, by the way, uh, we'll talk about this some more, is four or five different locations. It's not one singular local church. It is not uh, like some of Paul's letters that were addressed to a particular community, right? The church at Corinth comes to mind. Um, but it's, it's written to a dispersed group of believers in, in the general area, what we would call Turkey now which tells you, by the way, that vigilance in the local church is necessary, right? Would you think about an apostle writing a circular letter to all the churches in Turkey today? It just, there is a church there, there's a presence there, but it's not at the forefront of these things. But they were dispersed. They were aliens. Wherever they were, they were choice. They were chosen, selected for a purpose as believers to accomplish in the world. That's the why... He refers to them this way, because the recognition of what rights they do have and don't have is critical to achieving the purpose that they have in the world. Uh, Referring to them as aliens, then, is part of the expectation creation, right? What should you expect to be able to avail yourself of in the world, to accomplish Christ's purpose for you in the world? The simple answer to that is you do not depend on human structure to do what Jesus wants you to do. Because the world is supposed to look at you like Dr. Spock on Star Trek, right? With the raised eyebrow at minimum, on your best day, you should look a little off to the world. Yeah? That would actually probably be your worst day if all you did was look a little off. But you know what I mean. Choice aliens, that's our identity. We are weirdos with a purpose, in a sense, in the world. It comes with certain blessings. It comes with a destiny. It comes with a reality of my identity in Christ that comes with a promise of an inheritance that is ready and waiting and reserved for us. It comes with the obligations. This is all stuff that we have learned getting all the way through the first four chapters of 1 Peter uh, that we have learned that we're supposed to love each other. Did you need to be told that again? I need to be told that frequently. I do. We need to love each other sacrificially seek another's best interest. Um, I'm reminded of a phrase out of our Sunday school lesson today that Samson became annoyed unto death. People in the church sometimes get that annoyed at each other rather than focusing on each other from a perspective of love, from the heart. That's what Peter says we're supposed to do. 
supposed to long for the pure milk of the Word. We're supposed to, the long categories that we spent a good amount of time on, that we're supposed to do what is right in relation to human structures as much as we are able to in obedience to Christ. To do what is right, to keep our behavior excellent in our dispersion as aliens on purpose, living life that way, knowing that this isn't forever. This isn't forever. That the end, the finish line of all things is near. That God is going to bring human history to a culmination, to its apex, to its purpose in the near future. The end, the finish line is near. Gave us some specific expectations. And from here, there, there's, no, there's no mistake, right? Okay, so made some application to us. When people revile us, what are we? Blessed. It doesn't feel like blessing. That's why he said to tell you. Yes? When you're reviled, when people spew verbal hatred at you. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke that in that day you're supposed to leap for joy. But Peter says you're supposed to be cognizant of the blessing that is to come by being reviled for the sake of the name of Christ. When you encounter difficulties for the sake of the name of Christ, when people revile you for it, it is a blessing and that a reward comes by it and that our life is characterized by some measure of difficulty. And that believing that is a faith position. Peter says that people who do that entrust themselves to a faithful creator. In other words, you still need to be told that because it still isn't going to feel like that. It's not ever going to feel to you that being reviled for the sake of Christ's name is blessing. You never, ever feel that way. But it is always true that when you encounter reviling for the sake of the name of Christ, that you are entrusting yourself to a faithful creator who himself does what is right. And he does not forget your work. He is faithful. He is not unjust, Hebrews tells us. When you encounter difficulty in reviling for the sake of the name of Christ, you're blessed. There is... Let's just say there's no mistake here that Peter goes from that topic to the one we're covering today. There's that little word, therefore. He's synthesizing the application of reviling for the sake of the name of Christ being a blessing. Therefore, I urge the elders among you How did we go from the blessing of reviling to talking about elders, elders? How did we do that? How did that happen? It's a mystery, isn't it, guys? Isn't it? Oh, no. Not if you've been an elder for a few decades. Been a pastor for a while, a couple decades. It's relevant. 
Peter says this. He addresses them. He says, I urge you, elders, the elders that are among you, as your fellow elder. In other words, he could claim, he could, he could pull rank. He could say, yes, I'm an elder of the church of Jerusalem in a sense, right? He could say that. Uh, as an apostle, he could say that. He could say, I'm an apostle, and I could demand that you do what I say, but that wouldn't fit the context very well, and we'll see how, why that is true, because that's not how he tells the elders to shepherd. So he says, I urge you, I exhort you, I admonish you, I'm, I'm encouraging you, please understand that I know exactly what it is that God has called you to do. I am not asking you to do something I'm not aware of. I urge you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, why would he say that? Well, remember that Jesus himself was the primary example of suffering for doing what is right in obedience to the Father, and that that was better. So it's directly relevant. That was one of his qualifications for the office of apostle, that he was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. But it's directly relevant to the encouragement. He says, I was an eyewitness to how doing what is right in the midst of suffering and obedience to God the Father is better. And I urge you on this basis and the basis of shared experience. This is relevant, you know. Um... I, if you have served in any kind of vocational ministry or, or in any church office, you have so much input on how to do your job from people that have never done it, even tried to do it, would never dream of doing it, would hate doing it, would never once even interview for it. But by golly, they got a solution. You know, it'd be like a panhandler telling you how to run a Fortune 500 company. He can have an opinion, but not everybody's opinion is worthwhile, right? Think about half a Congress has never actually worked for a living. So who are they to tell me how to make a dollar? Or how many dollars can they take and it be reasonable and just and right? Anybody? I don't know. Peter's not there. Peter could say, I'm an apostle, therefore you will do what I say. But the apostleship is a unique position, isn't it? He cannot say that I am speaking to you and we share this experience because I'm an apostle. He never muddies that distinction. They're not apostles. But they do have a shared experience in eldership. And he's a unique elder in that he watched these sufferings of Christ. He's a partaker, a koinonos in the glory that is to be revealed. In other words, he's looking for the same blessings that are coming to the elders to whom he is speaking. I'm an elder with you, the elders among you. 
He's addressing particular individuals. And that's, that's why it matters that we understand the audience here, I think. Because some people make a hobby horse out of something when we're talking about elders that they probably shouldn't. Okay. Let's look at the audience. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. They're spread out in a region. This is multiple local churches. We have people that have stopped coming to El Paso Bible Church because they had to drive in their air-conditioned car for 12 minutes, and they only wanted to drive 10. You need to understand the distance between these on foot makes it, under, it makes it necessary that we understand these are not all the same local body, okay? And even then, when we say the church at Jerusalem, like when we read the church at Jerusalem had 3,000 people added to their number, they could not buy a basketball stadium to meet in, which is what happened down in Houston, right? Lakewood Church buys a basketball stadium because they need to have everybody in one room. They were meeting in different smaller groups, and yet they were addressed as the church at Jerusalem. Couldn't be done any other way. So he's talking to the elders among those churches, right? Kind of a distri- what we call the distributive reference here. He gives them an exhortation for all of them. It's not written to a singular independent Bible church. It's written to a group of saints in a general region among whom the choice aliens are dispersed. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Uh, And I say that church polity is a major hobby horse for some people. Uh, the way that a church governs. That's the word polity, not policy, right? Polity is how we, how we do things. That's why when somebody wants to be a member, we say, here's our constitution, here's our bylaws. This is how we do things, but we don't hand them a page in the Bible to sign. You understand the difference? Because the Bible does not clearly say Thou shalt operate your local church this way. Otherwise, we would literally just have a piece of paper from the Bible printed out in our Constitution because that would be a no-brainer. Right? Right? Okay. So don't make this a hobby horse. I'm just trying to explain something, right, that it's not a guarantee that Peter is addressing an elder board in each of these churches. That's not empirically provable, so don't make it a hobby horse. What we would call a plurality of elders probably existed some places, and it's unlikely to have existed in others. Um, And I I don't consider that an essential issue. It's something that we ask for agreement on because it's how we do things. You do not have to agree that everybody else is going to hell because they do it a different way. Okay, we don't ask you to do that. We don't ask to say that those guys are idiots because they do things a different way, but we do it this way. But you can see that, right, how that might be distributive. He's writing to these different locations, each of which is re- virtually required to have a local church, and each of them has at least an elder, so there's a group of elders that are being addressed among them. It might have been just one. It might have been more than one. It's not explicit. And I think most of the elders 
referenced when it's a plural like that could be explained that way. And now I say that with some humility because that's what we do. We have a plurality of elders. Guys, did the plurality of elders, I'm just going to ask the guys who have been doing this for a long time. They don't want me to say how long they've been elders here, I think. Does that avoid all the shipwrecks? Did your plurality of elders fix all the problems? For the last 40, 50 years this church has been around? I know it hasn't because in 2008 I read all of the congregational meeting minutes, special and regular, for all the decades before, before I was born. I really kind of wish there was a page in the Bible that just said, this is how you ought to do it. It's just not explicit. We, we, and in my lifetime, I mean, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. I, I went to a Bible church where there was, was a plurality of elders, and then there mostly wasn't because they split so heavily, and it took one elder and the pastor was all that was left out of nine or ten of them and more than half the church. The, the, here's the problem. The church, it's not explicit how you do things. All of those polities, all of them, I've been in churches where functionally there were elders but it was staff-led. That was a mess. You've got to have a particular kind of personality to do that. Plurality of elders made a mess. No, doesn't avoid the problems. Pastor-led doesn't avoid the problems. Pastor of a deacon doesn't avoid the problems. I've been in all of those churches. I have candidated at all of those churches over the many years ago now. And I was willing to go and serve in any of those environments because, again, I don't make this into a hobby horse. However, all of them have the same liability. All of them do. one point or another. And this is what has been the experience here over many years, predating me, from what I can tell, right? Because either we're all wrong, we're all wrong about how church should be run, all of them, or we're all sort of, we're, we're within biblical record, but we all have a similar liability. That's where I go. We have a similar problem with all styles of polity, and I think that's what Peter teaches here, that the problem is the same when any polity, any governance of a church crashes and burns, which is the norm, by the way. The church in the United States, the local church, is in a constant state of crashing and burning. You do realize that. And it has the same problem. So the passage indicates what the problem is and how to resolve it, in my opinion. The problem, as I see it, and then I'm going to justify it, okay? I'm not preaching my opinion and then looking for it in the text, but I want you to know where I'm going. The problem is that the people in leadership, no matter how you define that, biblically speaking, the people in the leadership either don't do the work or don't do the work for the right reasons. They either don't get to where they don't do the work or they don't do the work for the right reasons. We'll see that both of those are necessary in this passage. Now, we get fixated. See, like, 
Last week, I mentioned to you that we're going to have a congregational meeting in January, and the Constitution allows for the congregation to nominate somebody. Now, to be honest, frequently the elders identify somebody who is qualified as an elder, and that is, we nominate them, but it is certainly available for you to do that. But when we have that discussion, and this isn't just us, this is almost everywhere, we start understand that it's almost a necessity now because we don't teach on this enough. We start with a circle that just has warm bodies in it. We do. And then we look for a warm body who meets the qualifications which are high. Yeah? Y'all can go read the qualifications for yourself. That's where we get stuck most of the time. We're just looking for a warm body we're still breathing, still on the green side of the grass, Joyce. Joyce and I just had this conversation today. I said, how are you, Joyce? He said, still on the green side of the grass. I said, well, praise Jesus. But that won't get you on the elder board, just being on the green side of the grass. We focus so much on the qualifications, we don't bother to assess whether somebody's going to do the work or whether they're motivated by the right reasons to do the work. And that is the shipwreck point. Because not everybody who is qualified is going to do the work or is going to do the work for the right reasons. And when they decide that that's no longer going to be the case or they're not willing to keep up the charade anymore, they rarely give up the office. Right? Y'all have had to have witnessed this at some point. I promise you this. I work my tail off. Jacob works his tail off. Just here, not to mention the businesses that we own and the other things that we do just to make our lives work. I, when I am done, when I can't do the work anymore, or if I have a significant doctrinal disagreement, or if I have a motivation problem, I will leave. I will leave. Here's the thing. The guy who isn't doing the work but just has the office has no reason to leave. It's not his job. It's not his vocation. He's not getting any money. All he gets is, you know, his ears scratched and his belly rubbed. He just gets a little respect for it. That's the, that's the problem. That's where all of the polities fall on their face is because the people who are then, whatever the leadership is, don't want to do the work anymore, or they don't want to do the work for the right reasons anymore. So we shouldn't get hung up on the qualification. We need to make sure people are qualified, but that's not enough in itself, right? Probably many of you have interviewed people who interviewed well and didn't work well. Yeah? Maybe. I, I myself, I'll admit to it, I've interviewed for jobs I didn't want. Because you had to do them. You had to eat, right? And sometimes I got jobs I didn't want. If you're of a low character, that's a recipe for disaster for your employer, isn't it? 
qualifications get you considered, that gets you to an interview in a sense. But we need to spend more time on the job. Now, this is why. Because that's what Peter says. I exhort you, the elders among you, however that is, whether you've got two in one church or ten in one church or one in another, the elders that are among you, I exhort to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That's a dative of location, by the way. That means your YouTube favorite pastor is not your pastor. The guy on YouTube, the guy on whatever screen you're watching is not your pastor. If his life would be unaffected, if you got hit by a train tomorrow, he's not your pastor. If you don't occasionally hate his guts for getting up in your business, don't raise your hand now. Stop that. I saw some of you jerking your shoulder. He's not your pastor either. That is foreign to Scripture entirely. You could tell if a shepherd was walking down the street by the way he stank. And that's the way people ought to treat pastors today. If they don't look, smell, act like, and, you know, if they don't look a little bit like the sheep, it's hard to tell if they're a shepherd or not. But this is a fairly rare verb, shepherd, the flock of God. Jesus uses it when Peter is being restored and he says, shepherd my sheep. To Peter, restored to useful service as an elder among other elders. Do the job, he says. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Again, it's not a common reference. It's a figurative Reference. That's the literal meaning. I, I was talking to Brody this morning, and I said, Brody, how's it going? Or what's going on? I said, he said, nothing. I said, uh, Brody, is that literal or figurative? He said, yep. <laughs> That's a tough one. It's an important hermeneutic principle, right? Because we, we take a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic which means that when the text is figurative, that's the literal meaning. Does that make sense? Because the things that I do, I, I don't have sheep. I did have sheep, a couple of them for a short while. I have goats, similar husbandry practices. The things that I have to do to goats and the things that shepherds have to do to sheep are not literally things that you do to the flock of God. I'm not going to go any further in describing what I do to goats. Jim knows. I had to come help a neighbor with a goat. I don't do that to y'all. I don't do that to y'all. It's a figurative reference. That's the literal meaning here. And they understood it better than you. How many shepherds do we have in here? Literal shepherds. None. But Israel had been shepherds. You remember all the way back in Genesis when they go down to Egypt and they settle in the land of Goshen, Joseph tells them, you guys tell Pharaoh that you've been shepherds for a long time. You tell them that my father and my father's father have been shepherds, and we are shepherds too. Why? Because otherwise he just brought an army into the sovereign borders of an empire, and they're going to get wiped out, no matter how nice and good Joseph was. 
They had gone back before their national prehistory. They were shepherds, so they understood it. When Peter says this, shepherd the flock of God, they knew how to make the connection between the literal and the figurative. What does it mean to you? You probably have a picture in your house of Jesus holding a little lamb, and that's what you think a shepherd is. (laughs) Cheap chicken bologna. That's about half a 1% of what a shepherd does. I'm not saying the picture isn't pretty and cute and it doesn't warm your fuzzies. You know, get your feelings all happy. But that's not shepherding. It's not. God the Father calls himself the shepherd of Israel in the Old Testament. What do you think he meant, meant by that? combat. That's what he meant. He meant, I will go before you, before your enemies. I will flatten their soldiers. I will make your mountain into a plain. I will protect you on all sides. One of you will set a thousand to flight. That is what he demanded of the kings of Israel who ruled in his name, who were also called shepherds of Israel. That's what they understood. That is what they understood when the shepherd was gone, has gone from literal to figurative. How is it that within the body that you've been given authority over, how do you shepherd them? You need to be prepared for confrontation. Doctrinal and physical, in my opinion. Rarely have I ever thought somebody was going to hit me in my regular life, but I've been in some meetings where I wasn't so sure. Not here, guy. We're friends. I think. We're friends. We're friends. Jacob just tolerates me, but I'm friends. With, I'm just right, Jacob? Yeah. We're friends. Legitimately, actually, I think that's best. When you call out a hireling in a meeting like that, you can expect him to become violent at minimum with his words and emotions. And that's the position I've been in. It was not have been much of a physical contest, let's just say. And I think that was the only reason it wasn't. It's primarily about protection The shepherd takes the flock where the food is, points them in the direction of the food, moves them around where they need to go. I don't run vocabulary cards before you and make sure that you understand all the little words, right? I don't come to your house. You come here and we we teach the Bible. But the way that I teach the Bible, and you may not realize this, most of the, most of the community that comes in here is going to think I'm boring as mud. The reason for that is they want application and motivation only, and I don't care that much about that. Okay? I don't think that's what Jesus is going to exercise his discernment at the Bema for my performance for. 
He's going to assess me over whether I have prepared you to eat from the Word of God on your own. So that's why I'm boring. Some of y'all don't think I'm boring, I hope. That's why most people think I'm boring, because I repeat things. Like, how many times have I told you what choice aliens mean? How many times have I told you when you read the word saved to ask the question immediately, saved from what? Those types of things. That is the means by which a shepherd protects the flock even in his absence. By training the flock, (laughs) teaching them to feed themselves from the Word. Protection is key. Now there's some implications there, right? Because it's talking about elders, right? So if we have multiple elders, this is the job of the elders to protect, to guard doctrinally, physically if necessary, which is the only reason that I carry this, by the way. The only reason I started carrying it. Everybody, all our visitors are wanting to know why. So if you're visiting on live stream today thinking you're going to come visit, that's great. I carry a gun every day of my life, everywhere legal. Because it's my responsibility to do that. All the elders have this responsibility. Now there's some implicit ideas here, right? I was watching a show last night, one episode of it. It got, anyway, about shepherds. wasn't related to this, just what was on. uh, Called The Farming Life. It was actually sheep herding competitions. We watched those, they're really cool. Watch how they can whistle and make a dog park sheep exactly where he wants them, the certain exact number of sheep exactly where he wants them, separated from all the others. It's amazing. You know what? Nobody ever asks who's in charge. The dog never herds the shepherd, the dog never listens to the sheep complain. The dog listens to the shepherd, therefore, the, the sheep are listening to the shepherd. So there's an implicit element to that, right? That the elders have the authority to do the job that Christ has given them to do and holds them accountable to do. That wasn't in question, I don't think, in Peter's audience, but it does, it does come into question a lot in the church today because if you have a room full of 8,200 people, you'll have 150 different opinions as to what makes a successful pastor, Either you're the chief evangelist or the chief marketing strategist, the nice inoffensive nitwit, that's a category. That, that's my favorite. Not really. I'd rather have an inoffensive nitwit that is encouraging to people than a hardcore heretic teaching false doctrine. I will admit to that. Okay? Jesus-flavored encouragement is better than straight heresy. Can we agree on that point? That's okay. Some people, that's all they're equipped to do, and I think the Lord will assess their performance 
on that basis that they did the best they could with what they had. And there are pastors in El Paso that have been serving for decades with no more than an elementary school education. The standard is going to be different for their faithfulness. It is. They have the authority to do what they're supposed to do. I mean, that's when Jesus repeats, when the, the shepherd is struck down, the sheep scatter because there's no one in that position of authority. That's the picture. Protection, guarding. P- Peter says other things here. He says that part of this, by shepherding the flock of God, this verb exercising oversight, episcopeo, you may recognize that word, we, our English word is Episcopal. That doesn't mean that you become Episcopalians. They borrowed the word and changed its meaning, right? Made it into a denomination. Episcopal means to watch, to see around, upon people's lives, to see that they have what they need, to see that they're cared for. Give them directions. Stay out of the pit that they're heading for. Stop playing in the street. If that's what you need. Apparently, a lot of people in El Paso need to be told not to play around in the street, right? Have you all noticed that? Exercise oversight. That looks like this, without compulsion. It means that elders shouldn't need to be micromanaged. They shouldn't need to be motivated by external forces to do what they've been tasked to do cajoled, ur- I mean, we draw the line at urge because that's what Peter is doing, right? We don't want to say Peter's not doing something right, but they shouldn't have to be manipulated. They shouldn't have to have leverage. Maybe the Lord was displeased with that last one. I never know how that got turned off. I didn't swap the batteries this morning. Hopefully I got enough. You know what I mean? They shouldn't need a shoehorn to get them to do the oversight ministry. Right? That's the idea. Deliberately or voluntarily, meaning that they do. I knew I should have swapped them out. It keeps turning itself off here. Not under compulsion, deliberately, purpose. I back on now? That was quick. All right. But purposely, not for your own purpose, not according to the 40 days of purpose, not according to the best-selling little paperback that you're going to bring into my office and say, Pastor, this is how to do your job. I already have a best-selling leatherback that tells me how to do my job, by the way. So if you pick something up at Walmart for $3.75, it's not going to trump this. Just FYI. Not going to do it. But according to the will of God, meaning that they need to be able to understand what God wants for the church and not be building up their own pride, building up their own reputation. 
You'd be doing the work without greed. So you can be greedy for things more than money. I think they did pay their elders. That's the passage Jacob read. Worthy of double honor are the ones who work hard at preaching and teaching. They paid their elders, I think all of them, and the ones who worked hard at preaching and teaching got double. That's the nature of the word honor in that passage. You don't do it for greed, but you can be greedy about other things. You can be greedy about the position. You like to be known as an elder in the church. You could be greedy for that. You could lust after that position. That happens. And Peter says you shouldn't do it that way. That's the wrong reason. You might be doing the work. You're doing the work for the wrong motivation. And there's a consequence to that. We'll get there in a minute. And you do so freely. Freely. Eagerness, my NASB says. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. See, I told you, this is why Peter doesn't say, I'm an apostle, do what I say. Because that's not how elders are supposed to rule. And Scripture does use the word rule to talk about what elders are supposed to do in a church. Remember, that's the exercise of authority. The elders who rule well are worthy of double honor, right? Rule, that's the word, exercise authority. But there's no whip cracking, right? Because sometimes I get this from people. They expect me to be a little, can you believe this? Some people expect me to be a little meaner. Can you believe that? Y'all already think I'm about as mean as it gets. Listen, I will rip certain doctrinal teachers apart to absolute bits if they walk through this door. But I will not crack a whip over you because I find that doesn't work. The elders will not do it. We will not identify somebody to serve as a deacon or as an elder, the only two biblical offices in a local church, actually, and say, and get the shoehorn and the whip out and say, you will conform to this area of service. You need to understand, we will not do that because you're supposed to do it willingly, not under compulsion. That's how you're supposed to do the work. Remember, that's the problem. That's the shipwreck. It's hard enough to find people who are qualified, but finding people who are qualified who will literally get off their butts and do the work for a long term is tough, real hard, way harder than just finding somebody who's qualified. Sorry, I said but again. I'm a meanie. Anyway. That's the the problem. Because you can't... We can give somebody a title, but we can't give them motivation. We can give somebody an office, but we can't make them love the office. We can't. So we don't get out the crowbar. We don't get out the whip particularly not with candidates for those offices, but also not for the flock. You each have a gift. You each have the Spirit indwelling you. What you should not do, and I'll just give you a hint, come to us and say, I see this problem that you need to fix. 
Because you are a gifted individual standing before Jesus Christ and God on the same basis that we are. And that isn't necessarily our role. To just fix all the problems. If you identify a problem, come with a solution. I have literally, literally never, ever put up an obstacle to somebody who identified a legitimate problem a legitimate biblical problem, because not everything is legitimate and biblical, with a legitimate biblical solution, I have never said, don't do that. I have never told anybody, no, don't fix that legitimate biblical problem with a legitimate biblical solution. Never. But if you come to me and say, I've identified the legitimate biblical problem as being a lack of butts in the seats, eh, that's not a legitimate, legitimate biblical problem. It's not. If you identify that as a legitimate biblical problem, I'm going to tell you that if you do that, the biblical answer is that you need to suffer more for Jesus. That is the only possible biblical solution, actually, is that we're not suffering enough. So if you want me to do that, go ahead. All right. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just providing an example of things that aren't resolvable the way that you think. John 10 gives us some other examples, right? Because we're accountable to the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, as examples to the flock. But verse 4 says this, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The chief shepherd is going to hold the local church shepherds accountable for the way that he emulated his character, or that we emulate his character. I think John 10 gives us this. The sheep know his name, and he knows them. They know his voice. They follow him in the midst of a crowd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and a hireling runs. I could make a comment there as to why, as to why pastoral tenures are between 24 and 36 months in the United States. I think you can, you can infer that, maybe that we're hiring hirelings to do the work of a shepherd. Maybe they have not correctly identified the thing that they're supposed to do in the body of Christ. I don't know all the individual situations, so I'm not going to say any more than that. A hireling runs, Jesus says, when the predators show up. He's not paid enough for this. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So doing the work the right way for the right reasons, doing the work the right way for the right reasons, it is full of difficulties. Remember, it's connected to being reviled for the sake of the name of Christ. But it does come with a reward. It does come with a reward. It's unique. And this is a problem for people who don't like the idea of the Bible teaching rewards. They don't like the uniqueness of some of the rewards. If you are not an elder, 
who serves like this, you don't get this reward. And I don't care what your YouTube pastor said. This is a unique, specific reward for elders who rule this way, who minister this way, and it is given to no one else that I can see in Scripture. Remember, I've told you this, and God is not a communist, okay? He doesn't take the big whole pie of rewards and then divide it up evenly. He is not, that would be unjust. That would be unjust. And he is not unjust, and he does not forget our work. The unfading crown of glory. I'm spending a lot of time on this, guys. I know we went a few minutes over today. Part of that is because we're not smelling the fried chicken. Potluck Sunday. This is real. This is real. It was not that long ago that one of our elders went to stand before the chief shepherd to receive, in my opinion, the unfading crown of glory. He served without compulsion, without greed, freely, because he loved you but his service is done. His service is done. And we need to realize that the church needs elders. And as hard as it is and how difficult it is to find qualified people, it is very difficult to find qualified people who will do the work. Who will serve voluntarily without compulsion, freely, ungreedily. That's hard. And we need them. So young men, strive to serve that way now. Because we need you to grow into that area of service. And just like I told you in Sunday school, you cannot grow a spine in the moment you need it. You cannot grow this character in the moment the church needs it. You can't. One of the reasons that we at El Paso Bible Church make it a habit of being countercultural in the ministry, and that is we'll, we'll put areas of service on young people with oversight. Uh, Jacob, I think, will put somebody up here to play the drums when they're about five or six. Right, Jacob? That's what they do in Juarez, I think, right? Oh, close. Maybe 11 or 12, but young. Because serving without compulsion is a character quality. Serving freely, without greed, without uh, a desire to be prideful about it is a character quality that takes time to build. The humility that's necessary doesn't happen overnight. Because we need elders, guys. We need elders. I'm very accident-prone, guys. I could fall out of a tree or get killed by 100,000 bees tomorrow. It could happen. Life is fleeting. But the church needs leadership despite that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We do thank you for your word. We thank you for this exhortation for the identification of what the Word is, uh, word requires of those who would serve as elders, for the promise that you do not forget the work that elders do who serve well and faithfully. 
Father, we thank you for the promise, for the future that is to come, for the motivation that it provides for our lives today. Father, I also thank you for the meal that we're about to have, uh, for the food that's been brought, but more than that, the fellowship that we'll have around the table. Thank you for it, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's dismiss with a song.